Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Today, interest rates, have they anywhere to go? Interest rates have been low in most parts of the world for some time now. In many places, they're actually negative. So what do central banks do next time? There's a global economic downturn, which, as we discussed last time, isn't very far away now. That's this time on the Debunking Economics Podcast. So interest rates in most parts of the world are at record lows. In Switzerland, for example, the current rate is minus 0.75%. It's been there for four years. Sweden and Japan are also in negative territory, while the Eurozone, governed by the ECB, of course, the European Central Bank, is on a flat zero. Uh, And Japan has barely been in positive territory this century. So when will it rise, if ever, and what are the consequences? Well, let's start with an obvious consequence, Steve. I mean, low interest rates create debt because people think it's cheaper to borrow. But that's uh, uh, th- that's perhaps a bad thing. But surely also it means people spend, which is a good thing. Well, I think they're doing neither, unfortunately, because when you're carrying, if interest rates were zero and debt was also zero, you wouldn't think think twice about taking out a loan. Interest rates are almost zero because debt is massive compared to income. You know, 1.5 times GDP in America, more than twice uh, in Australia and so on. Um, Mm. And and, virtually 2.5 times the places like Denmark and so on. Uh, So the low rates... Yes, they make it enticing to take on new debt, but there's so much debt out there already. That's why it's there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how do we get how do we get to that stage then? Why why did we all of a sudden start borrowing to the point that central banks had to drop interest rates so significantly? Well, I think because the central banks and 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 the and the and the governments in general uh, basically said debt's a good thing. This is one of my main complaints about. Neoclassical mainstream economics—they effectively demonised equity and 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 enhanced debt, because the way they they, they teach this is the thing called the capital asset pricing model, which is their overall way to try to uh, interpret what happens on stock markets in an equilibrium way. And as part of it, they have what they call the Medigliani-Miller hypothesis, and this simply says that if you uh, they ask the question, does the level of of corporate debt affect the valuation of a company? And they say, no, it doesn't because it's quite possible for a, a, uh, a highly levered company to be bought by somebody, uh, have its shares being bought for cash, or a lowly levered company to have its uh, shares being bought by people who borrow money. Therefore, uh, on that uh, a priori argument, there's no relationship between the level of corporate debt and the level of share prices. Now, that is absolute and complete empirical bunkum. Well, you'd go for uh, you'd look at growth as well, though, wouldn't you? So you'd say it's okay having a, a highly leveraged company if it was growing very quickly, because obviously investing yeah, yeah. to fund that growth. Yeah, but the, the, none of this gets into this mainstream theory. It's all thinking in terms of equilibrium, mm. and it's thinking in terms of rational agents who can offset what other rational agents do. So the whole idea is to neutralise any role for the government in the economy. That's the, that's the ideological bias of this of this economics. What they pretty much said was with the Medigliani Miller, if you get an interest rate deduction on your tax payments, um, 
which you don't get an interest rate, you don't get a deduction for your dividend payments, then the best situation for a corporation to be in is 100% debt finance and 0% equity. Now, that was a major part of the ideological backing for the whole leverage buyout world that was the 1980s in particular, the greed is good period, but it still hasn't gone away and in this sense have actually encouraged corporations to take on that level of debt. So it's to me, it's it's been a bad economic theory leading to a bad idea that you could mainly, mainly be debt financed when for robustness, and this is something that uh, Nassim Taleb talks about very eloquently, uh, the highlight of anti-fragility, the more debt you have, the more fragile you are. The more equity you have, the less fragile you are. So we need a, a less fragile world which relies more upon equity and less upon debt. Yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it, how uh, even mainstream economists are very divided on all of this. So let's uh, let, can we give an example, Paul Krugman versus David Malpass. So David Malpass is the economist who's been nominated by Donald Trump as the chief executive for the World Bank, who was arguing several years ago that the US should lift interest rates because otherwise we're going to see a surge in asset prices. Well, uh, guess what, David? Too late for that. Mm. Paul Krugman, uh, who I know you love dearly, dearly, uh, he's criticised Malpass because he says uh, he's got this concern that low interest rates discourage thrift which he says is bad for the economy. So Krugman definitely fits into that camp of, no, keep interest rates low so people borrow more, so that helps growth in the economy. Uh, but here we've got a man who's sort of like going to be in charge of the World Bank who's thinking, well, maybe it should be we're sort of saying, you know, it should be the other way around. At least certainly, you know, interest rates need to be higher, so we try and discourage that sort of behaviour. But the horse is bolted, of course. Yeah, I just I think with, with, with what, we, what we're in now is, is a low interest rate world, whether people want it or not, because any increase in interest rates is going to cause the private sector to fall over, and and this is this is the um, the point that Paul Krugman will never get his head around because he he's, he's still thinking in terms of loanable funds. Uh, when you borrow money, you increase your spending capacity, but the person lending it to you reduces theirs, and then when you pay it back, the, the person who borrowed has less spending power, but the person who Lent has, has more and one balances the other out. And that means that there's no significant impact on aggregate demand with the independent level of private debt, which is unfortunately, to use a technical term, we can use these words on podcast and bullshit. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, okay. Uh, that's okay, good. It's, I don't uh, love podcasts for that reason. You can say okay, what we want. That's right. No, no, no radio um, regulator getting in the way. No big but, red button here. No. When, when, you, when you say there's... Um, um, uh, Banks create the money. They you know, write an entry on the asset side, creating the, a new loan. They put the same amount of exactly the same number into your deposit account or into the account of the person you're buying something off uh, as as a, the liability of the banking sector. That growth and ex- expansion of money in- increases and decreases demand equally as well. So you 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 don't have the capacity with low interest rates for people who are borrowers to counteract the lack of spending by those who are lenders, what you actually get is low rate of growth of credit and and low economic performance. And any putting up of interest rates will encourage people to pay debt off, which reduces the money in circulation and reduces demand as well. So you're locked in where you simply can't let rates get off the floor. And I think the the long-term history of interest rates until the levels of private debt fall for whatever what other reason, it won't be conscious policy that does it, uh, the long-term prognosis for interest rates is to remain low. And any uptrend is a, is, a, is a chance for anybody who uh, is in the bond market to speculate on the rates falling again. Yeah, you make a lot of money doing that sort of stuff. Mm. But um, I'm, 
I'm just wondering how bad long-term low interest rates are. Okay, obviously, there's the whole issue about asset bubbles, but there's good debt and bad debt, isn't there? So, in theory, um, you know, if you if you if you've got low interest rates, then that encourages you to take risks with your borrowing. So, uh, and and risk taking obviously creates innovation, uh, which can create future growth. If the money goes to innovators, but the trouble is it goes to speculators with the modern banking sector. Yeah. And this is the major problem that I see with leaving the banking sector. But the it's still way it the, the speculators are still taking risks, though. So they would be oh, they, speculating they're taking, risk, yeah. taking risks all the time. But they would presumably there's going to be a high return for taking a risk on, on something which is quite innovative. Do you know I mean, are they too mutually exclusive? Well, it's actually a lovely distinction that I, one of my, one of my favourite economists, John Blatt, the old professor of applied mathematics from Austrian from Australia, uh, made the case in trying to argue against uh, net present value thinking in terms of evaluating, evaluating uh, whether you should purchase an asset or not. Um, he said you have to distinguish between investment, what he calls placement. He said investment is something where you buy fixed fixed capital, you're actually building a productive factor of some description. Yeah. Placement is when you buy shares. I have a, a personal, I love embarrassing my brother-in-law in this front, a uh, lovely guy who's got a very strong ethical attitude to investment and he decided his, pardon <clears throat> me, his uh, self-managed superannuation fund would only hold ethical investments. Uh, and I didn't have the heart to tell him that he was buying shares of other speculators. He wasn't getting any money <laughs> to people like Cochlear in the first place because it was second, the second-hand market where you buy Makes no shares. difference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so so this, you, you, if you have money going to people who are doing a placement game, the one you get is volatility in asset markets. You don't necessarily get innovation. And that, to me, is the major weakness of the banking sector. I would far rather see the banking sector providing working capital to existing corporations and in, and innovation capital to entrepreneurs than doing what it's doing at the moment, where it basically doesn't provide any money of any real substance to the corporate sector uh, in the way compared to what it used to in the 50s and 60s. Uh, it just basically lends people to gamble on asset markets. Well, you should be telling them to buy corporate bonds, shouldn't you? Because that is an investment then. Yeah, uh, and that's what you know, the major level of the debt we're seeing is corporate bond issuance, and that often ends up being banked up by bank loans as well. It's the, the, the banking sector gets its fingers everywhere. But in terms of direct providing provision of money for investment, the level of money firms used to get for uh, lines of credit that it can enable investment just aren't there anymore. But, I've got to do a cough, mate. Pardon me. <coughs> But what about? I mean, if you if you are, and this I guess the, the, this is what's good, clear evidence that it's not working. If you uh, if you are using that low interest uh, rate to invest rather than just placements, as you describe it, then you'd be saying, well, okay, that that investment obviously is there to try and make you more productive or to create new goods or create the goods that you're doing now uh, more cost effectively, which would mean we'd see productivity increase. And, uh, you know, we're not, we haven't seen that for a long time. So even if there is this investment, where's the productivity gone? Yeah, I don't think the investment is really taking place. A lot of what's going on is share buybacks and things of that nature. Yeah. And you know, letting capital stock run down. The one country which has been doing solid investment throughout is China. And uh, in that sense, that's why there's been such a dramatic advance in China's productivity uh, per worker versus what's happened in America. Um, the, the, the change, I mean, it is in over a 30-year period is quite stunning. If you went back 30 years in America, uh, you're talking the late 80s. Uh, it's, again, you're caught in a bloody stock market bubble at the time. 
you need to go back to the to the sixties before you see substantial investment-driven behaviour in America, whereas China has been investing flat out for the last 30 years, caught up in a property bubble in the last 10, but dramatic level of investment in new technology and in training and, 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 and capital stock and infrastructure as far as the eye can see. Well, of course, we should get a good uh, balance of trade if we've got low interest rates. I mean, in th- you know, in theory, no one's going to want your currency if the interest rate is low. Uh, so yeah, so the so the value of your currency is uh, going to go down uh, if you've got a low interest rate, and that is going to make your exports cheaper and imports more expensive. Doesn't work, of course, when interest rates are low everywhere. But I mean, that's supposedly a, another benefit of low interest rates, isn't it? It, it should yeah, ha- should help your balance of trade. The trouble is that every every country in the world's got it right yeah, now. So yeah, exactly. Really well, actually, and the ones that the ones that don't have those low interest rates, you know, one and a half percent for Australia and one point seven five percent for Canada. Uh, of, of course, you know they are commodity uh, currencies by and large. But interestingly, though, Canada's I mean, Australia's in a, uh, got a positive trade balance. Canada's got quite a hefty trade deficit. Australia normally has a trade deficit as well. It's just I think it's a passing fact that it has a trade surplus right now. It's courtesy of. Uh, coal prices and to some extent iron ore prices. Um, so I don't expect that to that to continue. So any influence on the balance of trade doesn't really matter because everyone's because we're stuck with it. Basically, yeah, it's, it's 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 not a differentiating factor between different countries around the world. I mean, yes, you've got the lovely story of of of, of, of uh, Switzerland offering a negative rate. That really is to discourage um, asset, discourage people buying the Swiss franc as a hedge. So that's 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 why it's minus point seven five. You're actually what it is it isn't people individually are being paid negative interest on their bank accounts, but it says anybody who deposits money that turns up for bank, the bank itself, the central bank, the private bank has to pay interest on its on its uh, deposits at the central bank rather than vice versa. And that's to discourage that particular speculative flow. Uh, and that's try to keep the because when the Swiss when the Swiss broke from the um, peg they had with the euro, the currency dramatically appreciated and they want to keep that under control. That's what the negative rates are there for. But generally speaking, you look at everybody's in a band between zero and 2% pretty much all around the planet right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's only a few exceptions that are really over 1%, really. Mm. This whole thing about trade balances, though, I mean, I'm fairly convinced Donald Trump's seeing this. If he can uh, get interest rates to stay low, uh, then, you know, just as I described, he, you know, the textbook he read is obviously telling him that that's going to help your balance of trade ultimately. Hang on a sec. Textbook? You don't think he's textbook? read it? Well, the textbook is a, the textbook his advisors have read. Then sorry, that's possible. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, they're telling him that if he keeps interest rates low, then his trade balance is going to improve. Yeah, he's he has is actually obsessed by the trade balance, and that's something that that's an obsession I share. I think we actually dramatically, and this is one of my might have you know one of my criticisms of modern monetary theory. I think it under underplays the importance of the trade deficit because it's so American centric and it's thinking. And to me, the trade deficit, if you're not a, if you're not producing the global reserve currency, then your trade deficit makes you vulnerable. And now what what uh, what um, some extent Trump doesn't realize that the trade deficit doesn't matter because he has the global reserve currency. However, the thing which got him into office was appealing to all the workers who lost their jobs as production was relocated to China. Yeah. Uh, and on that front, yes, the trade deficit does matter because it's actually recording how many people are no longer working in, in General Motors and now if, if they're lucky they've got a job in Henny Penny. 
um, and, and he is picking up on that angst of the American working class. So, so he wants. Uh, so he wants that. He does want interest rates to be low so that people will invest in corporate bonds for investment to get those jobs back. Surely, yeah. But I don't think it's going to work because of the level of corporate debt is already at a glow as a, as a, at a you know, American record. Yeah. So it, it's it's this whole problem. If you want to have higher interest rates, you've got to have lower debt. And, of course, that's the last thing which is being addressed right in the lower debt in terms of private debt, not government. And that's the last thing which is being addressed by anybody anywhere on the planet. So I think in that case, because they can't see what the problem is, we're stuck with the symptom, which is low interest rates. So how do, why is this so pervasive? Why have we got low interest rates everywhere? Why have we got high debt, uh, inflated assets being driven um, by those low interest rates or the other way around, really? Uh, and, you know, in the same situation around the world as well, that central banks are afraid to raise rates. Why is it so pervasive? What, I mean, we would expect countries with uh, lower household debt would have higher interest rates. Yet if we look at Australia, household debt is well north of 120% of GDP, but interest rates at 1.5%, which is, you know, higher than, than most countries. But generally, as you say, we're all in the same boat. How did it get there? How come it becomes a global phenomenon? Why aren't some countries exceptions? This is because they're all reading in the same textbook. I've just been reading the one, some work of the one, my dear, uh, one other person. Uh, I have a bit of respect for him, but it's, it's he's one of the main problems as well. Paul Samuelson, because he's the one who gave us this whole view to economics. What they call Keynesian economics was actually Samuelsonian economics. Um, but because this whole theory is equilibrium oriented, sees capitalism as equilibrium system, believes that uh, they ignore the level of debt because of the loanable funds model, so they don't even look at any accumulator in the system like private debt, actually encourages debt over equity, which is what the whole financial, uh, the whole capital asset pricing model has done. Uh, We've all let ourselves, Australia, we've basically got a whole bunch of ship captains who don't know what a boat is. And and that to me is why we're walking into the same bloody wall at once. Uh, if we actually were conscious of the role of the financial sector, we would never have gotten into this problem in the first place. But if we continue to have growth, is it a problem? If we've got high debt and low interest rates, but we've still got growth, that's not an issue, is it? Well, when, the, when does it become an issue? The, the growth is fragile because, again, mm. you, you, have a, you have a demand-constrained economy. This is the, the classic, another classic error in mainstream economics is to see capitalism as supply-constrained when, in fact, it's fundamentally demand-constrained. If you want to increase your supply of something, you've got to generate the demand for it. Um, and and you know, overcapacity is the rule, not undercapacity, et cetera, et cetera. All these issues are something we know empirically from looking at the real world, which neoclassical economists completely avoid reading that research. So in, in that demand-constrained world, if you want to have the growth uh, in demand, then you've got to have it coming from some monetary source. And if you're putting... Uh, constraints on what the government sector can do from believing that government shouldn't run deficits in the first place, tick that box. And if you're also ignoring the private debts risen to un- unsustainable levels and therefore you won't get much credit growth in the future, tick that box, the one thing you're left with is running a trade surplus. Well, it- that's a zero-sum game and, and America's you know, running a deficit. So. Yeah, but still growing. Uh, but as you say, they've got the reserve currency on their side. But central banks, uh, what do they, they love to talk about themselves calibrating the economy as though they're, mm. they're fine-tuning something that only they control. 
But, I mean, they have sort of, because they've let us get into this situation, they've sort of made themselves redundant, haven't they? Because if we look at, let's take Switzerland as, as an example, another country with a very high household debt, mm. at a very low interest rate, minus 0.75%. It's one of the, I think, the worst, the lowest interest rate in the world, I think. Yeah. Yet it has a GDP growth rate of 2.4%, but it was 3.5% in the middle of last year, so it's on the way down. If they start to really tank... They have no instrument left to uh, to do anything about it because their interest rate is already minus 0.75%, which is the only yeah. instrument central banks have got. What can they do? Well, the central banks themselves, one thing they're trying to do, and I'm, I'm willing to go, go to the uh, barricades of this one, they, they want to abolish cash to make negative rates even more effective because they think if we have negative rates, that'll encourage people to spend. Uh, so you put a negative rate on a deposit account because the Swiss haven't been able to do that because they still have a physical currency. If you put a negative rate on a bank account, people won't bother putting their money in the bank and you'll have a leakage of reserves from the from the, from the banking sector going into cash, uh, which just is unsustainable. So, But what they're trying to do is say, let's abolish cash then. And the only place you can hold money is in a bank account and therefore we can put negative rates on bank accounts and you've got no choice. You, you can't take your money out. I think this is a horrific thought, but that's actually what I see a lot of central banks talking about in their deluded gen- uh, dynamic stochastic general equilibrium world. And that, yeah, because it closes it, doesn't it? It creates more of a closed system for them. But it's it's very big brother, isn't it? It's extremely big brother. And this is, the, this is what I find quite ironic about the whole progress of neoclassical economics, because it began in a fundamentally libertarian way. Uh, they believed that they were going to improve the existence of the invisible hand. And what this meant was that everybody could now do their own thing and the market would work out the best situation overall, regardless of what people thought. When they couldn't get the mathematics to work for their various models, over time they've drifted without even being conscious of it to believing we're all gods. We all have this incredible capacity to understand what the economy should be at, therefore we can jump to this particular situation in the process. Uh, and they actually, of all things, and you read a neoclassical model these days, it will often say a central planner decides to maximise the time path of utility uh, versus work uh, for the economy, and then they prove that in a perfectly competitive equilibrium, the time path of the economy is the same as will be chosen by a central planner. What the hell is the idea of a central planner doing in a model of capitalism? So that's that's what they've got themselves to without even being conscious that's of it. That's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? But I mean, yeah. let's let's put place ourselves in this future world, which might not be that far away. Then, if we get to, if they got their way, where central banks say yes, all money must be kept in banks. Uh, maybe we'll give you five or ten pounds spending money. Uh, you know, spend it wisely because that's all you're getting in cash. Uh, if you want to get yourself a coffee and the like, but everything else has to be kept in a in a uh, in a bank then they will say, well, okay, uh, minus 0.75% interest rate isn't a problem. In fact, we can take it to minus 3% or minus 5% if that's going to encourage spending and, uh, and investment and growth. And that's the sort of stuff you can find in Krugman's logic as well, by the way, in a recent set of papers. Where do you stop? Minus 50%. You've got, to, you've got the money yeah. now. You've got to invest quickly. To them, the whole problem, the reason capitalism is, is in, a, in a funk right now, according to the mainstream, is the zero lower bound because they believe the interest rate can hit an equilibrium level of employment uh, as long as you get the, natu- the, the, the what they call the natural rate of interest uh, correct. And to them, at the moment, the natural rate of interest is actually negative. So if we actually eliminate the zero lower bound, 
by making it possible to have negative interest rates for consumers now and bank accounts, bang, we can restore equilibrium by, by pushing the rate negative enough to inspire an increase in the level of spending to give us full employment. And I think, holy hell, they've done enough damage to the economy as if they, they try this one. Um, we're in a hell in a handbasket because if you have negative deposit rates, are you about to take out a loan? Yeah, no. If you take out a, you take out a loan... You're going to be paying positive interest to the bank and getting negative interest in the money you put in your account. Um, <clears throat> does not so, compute. Yeah. Uh, so that, know, that, that's the end of industry. That's so, the end of capitalism. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, yeah. I wonder if they've thought this through. Let's of course let, not. <laughs> let's, let's <laughs> have, in their model they have. Yeah. Let's have a look at... Um, Countries where there are, because I said wrongly, I think that, you know, that, it, that it's low interest rates everywhere. There are countries still where they do have very high interest rates. Turkey is an obvious example. 24% is mm. their interest rate now. It's just gone up. Their GDP per capita is falling. Unemployment is rising, but also inflation is very high, which is why they've pushed it all up. Inflation is over 20%. So this is a central bank doing, you know, what all the others did a long time ago, trying to control inflation by pushing interest rates, uh, by, you know, by controlling interest rates. So talk us through what they should do, given that situation, and why it's not working for them, because they're pushing those interest rates up, but inflation is still very high. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to claim expertise in developing economies. So I tend to be. This is where I'm going to be saying I'm just, you know, who knows? My standards, I'm waffling. Um, but <laughs> to, to me, a major factor behind the Turkish uh, bubble has been the government's been running a deficit of the order of twenty percent of GDP for some substantial time, and in, in line with what I argue about that, ultimately that means you've, if, if, if you've got to be buying capital goods from overseas, you can't, you can't make. Uh, you can't melt a blast furnace using Turkish steel. You you can't you can't import a Turkish. You, you can't. There isn't a manufacturer of blast furnaces in Turkey. So I'm, I'm, I'm I don't know that, but I'm willing to stick my neck out and say there isn't. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to buy the capital goods to build the increase the physical capacity of the economy while you've got this huge monetary boost, and therefore you've got to be issuing bonds which are denominated in American dollars. And that therefore means people saying, what's the capacity for you to pay this back? And then they'll speculate on the currency market that your currency won't be able to support it. And bang, you start getting a massive fall in your uh, current, your, your balance of your currency and therefore a blowout in, in domestic prices because yeah. you're importing essential goods. And well, and that is what happened. That is what happened. I mean, the lira's exchange rate has been falling quite significantly in the last yeah. few years. So, yeah. uh, so well, I, I think I think in that case, Turkey has overdone the government deficit trick. A lot of this has been, from what I've been told from friends in Turkey, this is a large part of uh, the political appeal of uh, Erdogan. He's actually used this to uh, to have a huge construction projects that are giving wages to people from the countryside who are more conservative and more likely to vote for him. So it's had a large political flavour as well. Yeah. And in that situation, you simply can't run a government deficit that big. You've got to, you've got to probably whack up tariffs as, as, as well um, to stop it, you know, to bring in capital controls, all the stuff that uh, was done by Mahathir back in the Asian financial crisis. But, of course, Turkey's not a major exporter. Yeah. So um, the, the one thing I think that Erdogan's doing, which is sensible, is trying to develop a, a payment system in the, Islamic, in the Islamic countries so that they can bypass the American dollar. Um, and I guess, I mean, you know, textbook principles say, look, if the, uh, you know, if you've got high interest rates, then people would want to buy the Turkish lira. Uh, and yet, the, as I say, the exchange rate's been falling quite a lot. But, it, but that is because 
you know, even though in theory uh, it makes sense, you know, financially to buy the lira, who would want to buy it because it's yeah. such a high risk? Yeah, and it's actually just intriguing looking at the data right now. Turkey uh, actually has got a falling level of government debt, which probably implies the inflation rate is higher than the, the government uh, deficit is. So even though it's been running as huge um, a government deficits, the actual level of debt's been falling compared to GDP from about almost eyeballing this right up about 80% of GDP to about 30% of GDP. That's rising right now. But if you look at the level of private debt in Turkey, uh, surprise, surprise, that's rising. It's nothing, nothing gigantic, but it's gone from of the order of about 30% of GDP to about 100% from uh, 2005 till now. So that uh, is likely to go negative as well, and Turkey will have a... Uh, a, a credit crunch. So, what what can so the, in that in that situation? What what can a central bank do then? I mean, they've pushed up interest rates. Should they just carry on down that road? Well, I think, and that's when in one case, I'd be saying you've got to whack on whack on tariffs. Yeah, uh, rather, I'd, I'd be using trade policy, rather which puts me, of course, out the, outside the mainstream completely. Uh, and you've you've got to start you, not for the first time. <laughs> you've got to you've got to build the you've got to build industrial capability inside Turkey, which I think has been ignored. A lot of the construction work, again, from what I've been told by Turkish friends, has been uh, sort of shopping malls and stuff like that. Great for a retail culture, not good for a production culture. Yeah, well, that's a mistake being repeated all over the world, isn't it? So let's let's finish by looking at the United States then, because they've been on a zero interest rate period. They went into it in two thousand and seven. Uh, the last couple of years, we've seen interest rates rise. Uh, it's 2.5% now. So they've moved from that long zero interest rate period to a, a period where they're quite high. And now we've got plenty of signs that the economy is slowing, uh, but it's still one of the best performing economies in the world. Their household debt is comparatively low. Uh, so uh, is it simple as, as simple as that? They can afford to raise rates without an asset crash because debt levels are lower than they are in other parts of the world. No, I think the, the, the debt levels are still high enough to be uh, crunch if rates get too much higher. Like I said, two and a half percent. That's almost they're, they're, you know there are six there's six interest rate movements from the magic number of four percent. Yeah, and I think but long before they get to four percent, like my, I'm, I'm really doubting they'll get past three. But as they start putting up those rates, then the private sector will start reducing debt again. And you have a credit crunch and slow the economy down once more. So I think they're going to be a, a sort of a, a dance of the dead between the reserve, Federal Reserve not understanding credit and therefore making it more expensive for the houses, households and corporations. And the corporations and households reacting to increasing rates by turning off the credit spigot are causing the, Federal, the economy to fall down once again more when the Federal Reserve goes back and reduces rates. And if you actually, if you've got the data on hand, I'm pushing on my luck here with you. Yeah, you are. Uh, but the, do you have the Japanese data handy on interest rates? Well, it's not minus 0.1 percent, isn't it? That's what I've got here. Um, I'm wondering how long it has been. Uh, oh, since for that length of time. well, for a couple of years, and then before that, it was uh, it was at zero. So it, it it ran as zero. So you go back to 2010, it was 0.1 percent. Then 2011 yeah. dropped to zero, and the last couple of years, it's been negative 0.1. Well, actually, if you take a look, actually, just brought some data across from uh, Trading Economics, uh, looking at it right now, and they hit negative interest rates in 1999. 1999. So we're going to have 20 years, two decades of negative rates. There've been a couple of times they try to put rates up. One looks like about yeah. Two- 2007, yeah, and then 2007 as well, and they put them up and back they go down again, and they've, they've, yeah, they've only, a, yes, that's right. Since the late 1990s, basically, it's been around zero. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. what you have is once you're in this debt trap, and Japan was the first country to enter it, you're stuck, 
and rates have to remain low. And every time we try to put them up, bang, you hit that brick wall you don't even know is there, which is the level of outstanding private debt. Credit goes negative and bang you back into recession once more and the central bank gets forced to reduce rates once more. So in, in conclusion, can we now ignore interest rates as being an instrument for central banks and we have to look more at uh, fiscal policies and trade measures, as, as you were talking about with, uh, with Turkey, for example? That's a good summary. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Well, we'll leave it on that point. Very good. The mm-hmm. end of the death of interest rates. Good talk, Steve. We'll catch you again next time. Okay, mate. That was, that was good. Well, hopefully everyone else sees it that way. That's it for this time. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. We're back again next week with another edition of the Debunking Economics podcast. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.